Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. Be looking at verses 9 through 15, and today we'll focus on verse 14, at least the beginning of it. We'll read Ezra 10, verses 9 through 15. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. And separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That is right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people... It is the rainy season, and we're not able to stand in the open. Nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this, on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, with Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us from Your Word today, not so that we can be smarter, but so we can be more faithful. So we can know what it is that pleases You. So that we can know what it is that displeases You so that we can live in the light of Your goodness, so that we can live in the sanctification of Your Spirit, even as we live in the justification by the blood of Your only Son. God, make us more faithful to You. Become a greater light that dims out all the flashy lights all the temptations that are around us in this world. Because God, we would seek You and You alone. All those things that we have here are incidental compared to what we have in You. You alone are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our obedience. You alone are worthy of our very lives. And it is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can approach You. It is through the ministry that He has as our great High Priest that we can bring our petitions to You. And it is through the hope that He has given us in raising us from death into life from darkness into light, that we stand before You, called and in hope. Amen. We've been looking at the great assembly of the Jews in Jerusalem that Ezra had called together. Most of you will remember that this assembly was called because of the great sin of the people in joining together with the idolaters of the land to the point that every 
very many had married with the idolaters, jeopardizing the pure and faithful worship of God alone. And I have to this point offered no explanation for the possible reasons behind God's law forbidding these marriages to the idolaters, these unbelievers in God. And I still maintain that no reasons are needed. When God makes a law, He requires no supporting evidence. It is in fact the very evidence of our fallen state that we want, in some cases even demand, a reason behind His law or behind His instruction. It was that very temptation, that tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that brought us to demand understanding when all we owed God was obedience. So many in this world will ask, how do you know God's commandments are good? To which the believer should, without, without exception, reply, Because God is good. We don't have to explain why God did anything. We owe Him only our allegiance and our obedience. A believer, one who walks in faith, walks in faith, believing that God can see further understand more perfectly, love more completely, and guide more safely than we ever could with all of our senses. Unbelievers simply miss the point of God's law anyway. God is not through His law begging us to do His will. He's not trying to get us on His side. He's not wringing His holy hands in the hope that we're going to follow Him. God's law is His bottom line. The minimum requirement to be in right relationship with Him. Only He is right. And only the righteousness that He provides through His grace, by the person and work of Jesus Christ, and our acceptance of that gift by faith will accomplish a righteousness that is perfect and complete. Even if we, apart from Jesus Christ, stumble upon doing something God would otherwise approve of, it still reeks of the taint of our willfulness, and it is polluted by our will. Hebrews 11.6 puts it this way, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. He's not a rewarder of those who simply do the right things for their own reasons. He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. It is a pride-filled and a faithless thought to second-guess the perfect will of God 
as He has revealed it, simply because we may lack understanding. But there are so many who would bless what is sinful, bless what is evil, and decry those who would follow God's ways who would lean on their own understanding, their own reasoning to make their own decisions, who reserve to themselves the right to determine good and evil, who will only do those things which are right in their own eyes. But Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. But even as followers of God through Jesus Christ, especially as followers of God through Jesus Christ, our response even to those people who deny the goodness of God must be one of grace and mercy. There are a lot of people out there who are spouting a whole lot of bad stuff. Who are shaking their fist at God, shaking their fist at the sky, and saying, come and prove yourself to me as if they were the God of this universe. And even to those people, God responds at this time with grace and with mercy. I call to your attention that the sun rose this morning on the evil and the good. That the rain does not simply wet the good person's crops, but distributes God's grace to everyone for right now. If their heart doesn't change, they will one day understand the tragedy of their rejection of God's good gift. When they stand alone, unprotected, before the eternal wrath of God. But that day is not a day that should make us joyful. As we believers witness their destruction from the safety of our refuge in Jesus Christ. On the contrary, it shows only our own failure and our own judgment if we long for that day and that fate for others, even those we consider our gravest opponents. Who but a complete scoundrel would rejoice in another's destruction while clinging to our own unearned grace. We are not better than those in the world. We are called by God. God did not call us because we were better. That's a better way to put it. We are in Him because He called us. We did not earn the salvation that God has given us. We were chosen. We were elected regardless of our works. 
And in our nature, born with the taint of Adam's sin upon us, we followed our own ways, just like those who remain unbelieving today. But for those who are today in this hopeless, unbelieving state, there remains time to follow Jesus. Bowing to Him as King over your life. Christian, don't think that every time someone comes up that they must necessarily be argued with. I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach in one of the sermons I was listening to this week. There's something greater in Christ than being seen as right. It is having a heart of love and compassion and working toward the other person's salvation. When we bring forth the Word of God, when we speak as it were the oracles of God, when we go to the Scripture to explain things to people who have up to that point rejected God, it is for the sole purpose of helping them to see the salvation that God has offered. They will accept if they are called. But our responsibility is always to bring the gospel. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You were not saved because you were a good person. If you are a good person, it is because you were saved. Now, some might be saying, yeah, but what about those imprecatory psalms? Where the psalmist prays for God's curses upon certain people. Typically praying for God's justice to repay them for their sinful actions. I would say that their mere existence should not be taken necessarily as a model to be followed, but as instruction of what will surely become of those who remain enemies of God. I don't have this t- a time this morning to properly exegete a dozen psalms. We have lunch later. But there are about a dozen psalms that fit into that category. 
Each one proclaims loudly, though, the dangers of being found an enemy of God. If you want to know what the main point of those Psalms is, it is to underscore the danger of being found against God. The second thing that they can teach us without exception is that each one comes from a broken heart that has been abused by the wickedness of this world. And so the major two lessons, even for these imprecatory psalms that lie at the foundation of these prayers, is number one, God is sovereign and will someday judge the world. Full stop. And then second, we can be entirely honest with God in our prayers, even when our hearts are breaking. Even when we have suffered the worst that the world can throw at us. When we have been sinned against and we feel like we have been sinned against as much as God has been sinned against. When we have been brutalized. When we have been misused. We can take those honest prayers to God and He will not turn us away. Because it is the reality of life in this fallen world. If you have not been a victim of the wickedness of this world, at some point, we all will be. And throughout the New Testament, a church that is persecuted on almost every page, we find people praying for their enemies, even those who are putting them to death at that moment. And we find the exhortation like the one we just read in Titus to be the example and the command of Scripture following the deliverance of God's grace through Jesus Christ to all who would believe. That is the response of a Christian. Regardless of the evil that the world does, you do good. You preach the gospel. Now certainly we would not want to harm anyone in the name of Jesus Christ. And certainly we would never want to push someone away from God through our words or through our actions. The very next verse in this text in Titus warns us to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. That's verse 9. And it was for this reason also that Ezra and the leaders of the Jews accepted the proposal that we see in verses 13 and 14 of our passage today. Because just because someone was foreign in skin or foreign in lineage did not make them foreign to God. I have said often, I will say again, this was never about race. If they worshipped and followed God alone, they were God's people. 
And they were entitled to live among God's people without exception. We talked about many of those considerations even last week. In today's passage, in verse 14, it proves to me that the people were entirely sincere in their repentance and their intention to put this sin away from them. Now, I realize I gave you a lot of reasons last week to believe their sincerity. And you may already be completely convinced that they were sincere when they said, we must put this sin away from us. But I would say their action this week removes all doubt. Because the surest evidence for repentance is when someone humbly makes themselves accountable for obedience. They said, let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and the judges of each city. The cry of the people could have been, if their repentance was false, you don't know our families. How dare you judge us? They could have said that. And you can imagine that today... That could be said from the mouths of those who are even in churches on Sunday. Those who say they follow God and make a good show of it on Sundays at church, but accomplish only the appearance of godliness, not the actual innocence of it. But instead, these repentant souls appealed to their local leaders, saying in effect, let those who know us best make this judgment led by Ezra and the leaders of the temple. That's sincere. I'll take it a step further. That is dangerous if they weren't sincere. How many of those who would hide their sin or defend their sin or deny their sin would appeal to those who know them best? Only the innocent or the truly repentant will place themselves in the hands of those who know all their secrets. The guilty person wants to be judged by somebody who doesn't know them well. Who hasn't seen them at their worst. Who doesn't know the habits of their lives. Because their only hope to keep their sin and to avoid its consequences is in deceiving them in some way. But the appeal of these people was to the ones who knew them best, who knew their families, who knew their wives, who knew the devotion they had shown when no one was even paying attention to them. It's not the ones who started going to the synagogue or to the temple. It wasn't to the ones who started following God after this announcement. It was to those who had been doing it all along. Now there was a point where they could repent as well. And we talked about repentance over the last couple weeks. It would take time to bring forth fruit in keeping with that repentance. Many are the people who will declare their sorrow for sin 
and their intention to change. But it is the truly repentant who will invite others to examine them at all points in regard to that sin. It requires repentance and humility to confess that sin. It requires repent, uh, like the prodigal who returned to his father and declared in Luke 15, 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. One of the most overlooked parts of that story when I've heard it taught or preached is the repentant heart that the prodigal laid at his father's feet. Friend, this is not a common trait today. Even among those who attend church, we truly worry about what people will think about us. We believe the lie that if we admit we need help in uprooting our sin, people will think less of us. Christian, don't live your life so that other people will think well of you. You serve a single master, Jesus Christ. And if He is pleased, you have received your great blessing. Galatians 1.10, Paul explains, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Who are you trying to please? Whose bondservant are you? Don't look at others who may have a reputation for goodness or skill and envy them. Certainly strive for obedience in all things, but stop comparing yourself to others. It doesn't matter how much better or worse than you are than anybody else. They answer to their master for their actions. You answer to your master for yours. And often you don't see the struggles that that other person has. Most of the times, you don't even see when they have gone down spiritually in utter defeat. The most godly people I have known in my life have rarely been ministers, preachers, or deacons. I apologize to any of you that, are, that hear that, that are those. The most fervent prayers I have known have rarely been those schooled in prayer at seminary, but those who have learned prayer from long hours besieging the throne of God. Formal training is good, but it pales in comparison to consistent practice. You can be a great man or woman of God solely by abiding in His presence daily. Not accepting your own excuses for disobedience. Living in humility that leads to love of everyone around you. 
loving God and choosing His way every time that you know it. And that means also, if there is a sin that constantly confounds your efforts to destroy it in your life, you will use every means, especially enlisting your brothers and sisters in Christ, to help remove it for good. Because the one who is in Christ and has repented of their sin has nothing to fear from any discovery. That's why these who were truly repentant could cry out, let our leaders examine us. They will know whether we are right or wrong. If we understand truly that our examination will be by God Himself, what judgment of people could we possibly fear? Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly, if we are only pretending to follow God in Jesus Christ, if we have caused, then we have cause to fear both God and man. God, because He knows the truth in our hearts. And man, because all we have done is don a mask, hiding our true face and becoming a hypocrite in the process. Beloved, you have the freedom. You have freedom the moment that you take hold of His grace. Not a freedom that should be used for sin, not at all. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The freedom that Christ gives you through His blood, through His Spirit, through His call in your life. The freedom that you have is from the guilt, from the competition, from the warfare, from the deception, from the hypocrisy, and from the corruption of this world. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, You have called us to freedom through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We shall not fear the judgment of others. We shall simply long to stand before You. Longing to hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. God, let those words be the blessing that we live our lives for. Not trying to be well thought of. Not trying to seem the super Christian. Not trying to act as the junior Holy Spirit. But to be your bondservant. carrying Your Gospel to call Your people to come home. 
And God, we don't know who your people are. And so our message must necessarily be broad. Must necessarily be inclusive. We must go into the highways and the hedges and compel all that we find to come in. To tell everyone we meet of the great work of Jesus Christ who takes away the sins of the world. It is through your Son, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.